Welcome to The Waiting Room Revolution. We're so excited to announce our book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, Seven Keys for Navigating a Life-Changing Diagnosis, is available now in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Get a copy wherever you buy your books, and check out our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, for more information. People use their tattoos and engage with others and tell, tell their stories and, and use the tattoos to invite others to ask them about their story. So that is the most amazing piece of it. That was Dr. Susan Cadell, who is a professor at the University of Waterloo in the Department of Social Work. Susan's research focuses on positive aspects of stress and coping, particularly post-traumatic growth. Today, we will discuss her research on memorial tattoos and grief, including after a medically assisted death. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to have another academic researcher, which I am, and talk a little bit about research and its impact on people, particularly patients, families, providers who are living with us facing serious illness so and you're also a social worker which is really interesting yes um so maybe we can start with as a social worker can you tell us a little bit about the kind of research that you are interested in absolutely um so i started out um with uh, researching uh in the era in the 90s uh in the era of hiv and aids and um was really interested in looking at people's experiences of caring for um and being bereaved from uh um, hiv and aids and so did research around that um with caregivers, although a lot of them said that they weren't caregivers, but they cared about someone. And then that kind of morphed into um, an interest in palliative care because that was the time in which palliative care was really kind of beginning, uh, well, in the Kitchener-Waterloo area anyway. And uh, so, um, you know, I had kind of my ear to the ground about palliative care and sort of got into that. And then, moved out to Vancouver and got involved with Connect Place Children's Hospice and so pediatric palliative care, which was a bit of an eye opener for me and um, and then continued on with uh, Peds palliative care research and then I moved back to Ontario and continued on in terms of grief and have kind of moved more into the the area of grief in the last number of years. Um, and then, interestingly, a number of years ago, through uh, experience uh, working in the community around grief, I got interested in tattoos. And so I've been um, leading um, and co-leading um, pro three projects now on uh, tattoos, memorial tattoos, healing tattoos, and now Holocaust tattoos. Memorial tattoos, that's so interesting, especially something that isn't the typical research topic in palliative care. So how did that all start exactly? It started with uh, with an experience. I was co-leading a group in the community, a grief group in the com community, and I started hearing little things about people getting tattoos, like ne never expecting to get one, and it just felt right, and like just like picking up on little comments. And so it was sort of... Um, the uh, the idea for the research actually came out of practice, which uh, you know is like lovely that synergy of practice and research, um, and so I just had an opportunity to um, apply for a little bit of funding and connected with a colleague of mine who's a social worker, um, and who is tattooed, um, Melissa Reed Lambert, who's a, who owns a counseling agency locally, and. Because um, I have no tattoos. Confession, I have no tattoos. So that's, I really feel like an outsider um, in the in the research. And so for me, it was really important that I work with someone who has tattoos. So the two of us thought, you know, this little project, we'll just launch this little project. We got ethics and we thought maybe we'd interview, this is pre-pandemic, interview maybe 15 people locally. Um, 
the call went out and we had immediately more than 50 people volunteer. So we thought 15 and we got five zero and we went, okay, there's an interest here. So then I applied for national funding and we got Shirk funding and um, we then, by then we were in the uh, pandemic and did um, lots of uh, online interviews uh, and then turned that into healing tattoos, which include memorial tattoos. So we asked people about their tattoos, about the uh, meaning for them, uh, about how they decided what to get, how they decided where to put them on their body. Uh, and there were there's just there's so many wonderful stories um and we have a website called stories from the skin that are uh, that are not not that it shows a number of the results from our studies um and the number one biggest surprise for me and for melissa is we had done a lot of grief work grief research and Every single uh, caregiving or uh, grief-related interview that I had ever done started with the story of the diagnosis and or the death of the person. The tattoos, the tattoo interview, sometimes we'd finish an interview with someone and we would realize we had no idea how the person died. Sometimes we did, sometimes we didn't, but it didn't matter for the tattoo because the tattoo is an expression of the relationship is a celebration of the person is a is a, um is a connection to the person and so sometimes how they died was important in that connection and sometimes how they died, died had nothing to do with it whatsoever and uh so sometimes we didn't get that information um and that was that was an amazing that was a, one of those lovely i mean you know as an as a as a researcher those lovely like i wasn't expecting that moment and uh so that was really cool uh and the other thing that really we came to love about the research was learning how people used their tattoos to engage in conversations about tattooing to to push back against the stigma around tattooing, because there still is stigma around tattooing, to push back around the stigma about grief, to push back around the stigma about all kinds of issues like uh, like suicide, like uh, overdose, uh, any kind of stigmatized death, any kind of stigmatized issue like mental health. People use their tattoos and engage with others and tell, tell their stories and, and use the tattoos to invite others to ask them about their story so that is the most amazing piece of it so it's like they're using the tattoos as a way to remind themselves of the relationship but also as an advocacy tool maybe and yep. a way to to 100%. yeah to to change the conversation in sort of a legacy kind of way it seems like so that they can continue to talk about that person and what um and make some meaning out of the death mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so for some, uh, for instance, I, we interviewed a couple whose son had died by suicide, and they were very thoughtful about their tattoos being in, uh, on their forearms in relatively uh, visible areas. Um, the, the father actually talked about like rolling up his sleeve to expose the tattoo in order to engage people in discussions about suicide prevention. So it's, it's not just making meaning and, but the advocacy piece that, as you say, is, is really, really important so that it's also that marriage of advocacy and meaning making that is really, um, it's, it's moving. It's very, um, it's very thoughtful on the part of the people. And it's also something that we don't generally think about with tattoos. There's still a fair amount of stigma around tattoos. There's still less than there was before, but there's still a fair amount of, you know, workplace stuff about, um, you know, not having tattoos and beliefs, belief that it's gang related and things like that. And, you know, that's, these people are pushing back against that. So Susan, do you have any stories that stick out about um, that you can describe of what the tattoo was and uh, you know the meaning behind it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So many stories. <laughs> uh, so one comes to mind immediately of a mother whose uh, young 
daughter died of cancer and she had no tattoos um, and she wanted to get a tattoo uh, to come commemorate her daughter's life and she has uh, two other children who were born subsequent uh, to her uh, daughter's death and um, at the time of interview she had one small tattoo uh, on the on one shoulder and a very large tattoo on the other shoulder and she talked about how um, she was afraid of being tattooed and then discovered that the pain was not so bad and so got the larger piece on her on her other shoulder and they're both memorial tattoos to her daughter and her other children asked why she they were not being included in the tattoos and she her response was you you're with me and this is my way of keeping my daughter riley with me and that was very 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 moving um the larger tattoo is of um, cherry blossoms and she described the reason for getting that image um, is that cherry blossoms uh, reflect uh, and parallel her daughter's life because cherry blossoms don't last a long time but when they're there they're they're it's brief but brilliant and she likened her daughter's life to that as well so very very moving and a lovely tribute to uh, her daughter to the relationship and the continuing bond with with her, the with the mother the daughter and also with the rest of the family so as you know in 2016 canada legalized medical assistance in dying mm -hmm. um and i wonder if during your research that topic came up if memorial tattoos overlapped with people who had chosen to um you know, have physician-assisted death. Yeah, yeah. Well, we also did a very specific uh, study on those uh, grieving um, a death through MAID, and um, we did one interview in January of 2020, so all the rest were online. We thought we'd pause just for, you know, there's so many pandemic stories. We thought we'd just pause for just a month and then go back to in-person interviews because it, initially no one wanted to do those kinds of interviews online. Uh, and after a few months, people were like, yeah, I want to tell my story, so let's do this. So we did a lot of interviews uh, with folks who were grieving a, a maid death. And in that we did have some um some uh, some in the some of those grieving and made death had memorial tattoos um and some of the folks that we interviewed with tattoos had um the um i think some of those folks had 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 made as well as well so there was overlap between the um between the projects and as there often is um and one of the reasons why we wanted to do a study around grief after a maid death is because there is very little research that's specific to uh, grief after an assisted death of any kind. And it's as you know, it has existed for many decades in other countries, but we couldn't find any research in English at any rate um, on that kind of grief. And we were hearing an assumption in the community that grief after a maid death would be more complicated. And we weren't entirely sure that was gonna be true. So we really wanted to do the research and we we did, we we got some a little bit of funding from a couple of pots. So we just did Ontario and Quebec and it was also um, with a couple of researchers, re researchers at McGill and the University of Ottawa. And so we knew the Ontario and the Quebec landscapes, whereas made is different in different parts of the country. Um, and we interviewed folks in English and French, and um, everybody had an amazing experience, a very meaningful experience. And um, if anything, it made the grief um, some in some ways easier because they knew um they were able to say goodbye they knew when the death was happening and they for the most part were able to do what they needed to do um and uh it made the death 
very deaths very very meaningful um so that was really that was really interesting and so i mean you've been doing research in grief bereavement um for a long time have you seen a difference like what have you learned about is, um how this process works um is there a, are there things to do to make it better are there things that make things worse like what 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 are the things to know about grief that's a, that's a very good question so uh the one of the things about grief is that we don't learn about it it's uh it's pretty much a taboo. So many people who are grieving talk about being having people avoid them, especially um, around stigmatized deaths, around um, more, more difficult deaths, like when a child dies. So many people tell stories of having people cross the street or see them in the supermarket and kind of, you know, go into a different aisle or those kinds of things. And so one of the things that, um, we've been doing a group of us an international group of us have been uh, looking at is the idea of grief literacy and really trying to uh, increase the conversation about grief and we need to we need to teach one another we need to be taught and teach one another to understand grief and and I don't and not just death related grief any kind of loss we would lose a job, um, you know, the the loss of potential, you know, the loss of a dream being turned down for a dream job or a dream uh, school or opportunity. Those are all losses, and and we can experience grief, the grief of um, the grief of having one's world um, challenged, for instance, even when it doesn't affect us directly, like the stabbing at my workplace last just last week um you know didn't directly affect me but i've been experiencing grief around that because it 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 brings the idea of safety into focus safety in my workplace into focus so there's all kinds of reasons that we can experience grief and if we don't recognize that in ourselves and understand that in ourselves, how can we support others? So I dream about children being taught about grief in school, in grade school, in high school, at, at different, in different ways at diff different developmental stages and about grief being um, in, in ad campaigns and television campaigns and bus shelter posters and um you know on on public transport and public facing education to remind us about what grief is and to remind us how we can uh, recognize it and how we can support it in others because i think the number one thing is that that we hear time and time again from people who are grieving is that they think they th they think they're doing it wrong or they think that they're losing their minds or they think that there's something wrong because they're tired or confused or you know whatever it is or they have a they have a structured uh for death related losses we often people often think of the five stages which have deb been debunked time and time and time again and um, when the five stages of grief were never meant to be about grief, they were meant to be about people facing a terminal illness and have some validity there and have very little validity in terms of grief. But that's in the kind of cultural zeitgeist. And people often turn up in counseling rooms saying, I'm not grieving properly because I'm not doing X or Y stage. And so all of those, all of those uh, pieces for me mean that we need to be more grief literate and understand grief better in ourselves so that we know that it's okay to acknowledge it in others and we know how to do that and we don't feel like um we might well we don't feel like we might say the wrong thing so we're going to stay silent because there is no right thing so we, the important thing is that we show up and we try that's the important thing yeah to be with to be there mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah. So it's so interesting you said that because this is a nice segue into what we're trying to do here at the Waiting Room Revolution, which is a social movement, really, more than it's just a podcast. But we have, in some ways, and perhaps you have a similar situation as clinicians, as as academics, which um, my co-host is a clinician. Um, you know, we have been focused on teaching our field, um, other clinicians about how to introduce a palliative care approach into their work. And so perhaps you're teaching social work students how to, you know, be better uh, counselors, supporters, you know, uh, clinicians as well um, in for patients and families. But what we have found is where there's a real opportunity, another really big opportunity is to educate patients and families directly mm -hmm. about what they didn't know they didn't know and how to leach out um, this approach, a palliative care approach, mm -hmm. even if they encounter barriers. And in some ways, it sounds like some of your research has really been focused on, you know, grief literacy, death literacy, so that patients, so that people, communities can know how to support each other without only always waiting for the healthcare system to give them permission or to invite them in. We need to go out and, and, and demand it really, or activate ourselves to be seeking it over and over and over again, and not just sort of waiting to be told, hey, you're doing it right, or hey, you, you know, do you want to talk about this, but saying, no, I need to talk about this. And, you know, that causes us to react to be like, well, I didn't know what to do, I'm going to next time learn the skills so that if the next person asks me that, I'll be better prepared. Yeah, and that's, um, that's one of the one of the things that I'm really interested in right now, is the idea of grief leadership. And we've I've written a bit about it. There's a, there's a few things written about it that, that I have on my reading list. Um, and, you know, I think about it in terms of the uh, US president versus the Canadian prime minister. Um, I've seen Biden described as be, having grief as a superpower. And he's very open about his experiences of, you know, his I wife and children dying and um, another, I think, son, son or son-in-law dying. He's very open about his grief experiences. We also know that our prime minister's brother died. Um, and, you know, so he's a bereaved sibling. His father has died. I mean, that, that his father is a public figure as well, of course. So that's, he's a little more open about that. But they they are grief leaders differently. And, um, you know, I, I would love to see more grief leadership and, and more, um, more discussion of grief at, at, a, at a policy level, at a, at a political level, federally, provincially, municipally, everywhere, um, and uh, in workplaces. In workplaces, it is really important that grief be acknowledged, that grief be that grief be modeled by leaders, hence the term grief leadership. And that sense that sets the tone for people to be able to say, you know what, I'm, I'm having, I'm just having a bad day. I don't know how much I'm going to be able to do today. And I might be here, but, you know, or I might need to be away or whatever the circumstance might be. But yeah, we spend so much time in our workplaces and grief is not modeled well there like many other places and and so i think that's a that's an area that i think we really need to make some inroads in and so i love the idea of of a cultural revolution because that's what i'd like to see that's what grief literacy is about compassionate communities is about the waiting room revolution is about part of that as well and the idea of um palliative care principles being used in other areas is always something that I've been really, um, really adamant about in social work practice. I teach uh, grief and palliative care. I'm teaching it actually right now. Um, and a lot of the social work students will, will never work in palliative care settings per se, but they can take those principles into where, wherever they're working. And that is so, so important. Can you give me an example? I'm really interested in the sort of curriculum that you teach and the kind of principles that you talk about. So we talk about it as the leaching out a palliative care approach without the labels. Mm -hmm. And what we really mean is just you want to be fully informed, get the best care possible from the moment of diagnosis. We don't yeah. only want to have, you know, fully informed, you know, holistic whole person care at the end of life, uh, you know, last days and weeks. But that should be 
you know, our values and goals should be reflected all throughout the entire journey, which could last years and years and years. So I'm just so interested in, you know, what, what that looks like translates into from a social work perspective. So one of the things that I was taught from the very beginning about palliative care is that palliative care is value-based, uh, which you know has a lot of parallels with social work, and that one of the values and philosophies of palliative care is um, that um, well, there's so many things. So that we that one of the values is making death a part of life. So that's that is absolutely about having the conversations even well before diagnosis and at the time of diagnosis and not just at the end of life because we all need to make those plans and we need to revisit those plans as well. I mean, advanced care planning is not a one-time only conversation because at the age of 50 and at the age of 60, my wishes might've changed with or without a diagnosis of any, of any serious illness, but I'm, I'm aging. And um, so, so making death a part of life is, is, is really important. And one of the big values that I think I, in my classroom bring in by, you know, introducing that topic and, you know, um, having materials that actually ask the students to face their own mortality as well as the mortality of others. And then a second one is about interprofessional teamwork because a key aspect of palliative care as well is that it is delivered not just by physicians and nurses, that they, those are key professions and we need to have the input of other professions. So as social workers, um, you know, I think we often aren't trained well in interprofessional uh, work. And so that's a big aspect of that. And one of the other key pieces for me in palliative care and my understanding and what I was taught about palliative care, and then especially with pediatric palliative care, is that the unit of care is the patient and family. And I think that is so important in so many other areas. And for instance, in mental health, it's, you know, it, the, I understand that the, that privacy is important, but if we're not engaging someone's network, and that's so family, when I say family, is family of choice, is who I identify as my network, not necessarily my biological family. But if, if my network is not being engaged when I'm being, you know, released from something somewhere and, you know, or planning for a return home or whatever the circumstance might be, that it's just, it's not, it's not beneficial to anyone. So, uh, you know, the key, the key um, in terms of family slash network being the unit of care um, also has important implications in terms of grief and bereavement care. And I think it's really um, important just to to also acknowledge, and this is this relates back to grief literacy, is that not every every death requires every grief uh, circumstance requires counseling. I think it's really important, and that's part of making death a part of life. Is that we're also normalizing and understanding grief so that we're not automatically just referring people to counseling because they've experienced a death because we don't all need counseling we need support but we need support from our workplaces our networks our our faith communities our families our friends and sometimes from professionals but we don't all need referrals to counseling yeah i completely agree um and it's the same sort of parallel with not you know, when people are, you know, have an advanced illness, they don't automatically need a referral to a palliative care specialist, but they need a palliative care approach from everyone, from every clinician, doctors, nurses, social work, pharmacy, communities, families, churches. These are people who can provide support and, and a palliative care approach, which really just means many different things. But, you know, being there, listening, managing symptoms, sure, but man helping the life living that's still happening. So, so I totally get it. You, you know, I'm curious because you mentioned a couple of times about the pediatric palliative care. And I wonder if you've, uh, what your thoughts are of how grief is different for parents 
of young of, of children that have died versus uh, people who lose, you know, an elderly mm-hmm. grandparent, say, or, um, you know, an ex- more expected death if they're, you know, over 80 or something. Well, I think what you said is just key. I think the big, big difference for uh, when parents ex- uh, experience the death of a child is that it is, uh, it's out of norm. It's not typical. Um you know, that to some extent, when we have an aging parent, it is expected, even though we're not very good at dealing with it, it ex- it's, you know, it's sort of normative or typical that that person, you know, the person ages and, and dies. Whereas, you know, a, a three-year-old, 13-year-old, whatever age child, it's not normative, it's not typical. And um, I think that's the biggest thing is that the, that grief can be because we don't understand grief well grief can be very isolating and i think uh, parents often feel even bereaved parents often feel even more isolated because people uh, people often say things like oh i can't imagine or um I just I have no idea if I could I if I could manage or what you know like there's there's just so many things that people say that just aren't helpful they're trying to be helpful but they're just not being helpful um there's a TED talk by Nora McKierney that where she says you know I think you can imagine and I think you should imagine and I think that's um I think that's a really fabulous invitation in terms of part making death a part of life is that we're not just imagining deaths that are normative we're also imagining deaths that are are not normative that aren't in the order of things and um you know i think that's really uh that's really important i and i also want to uh, i'm trying i try not to use the word normal normative is you know a deriv- derivative of it but um Krista Kutura has written a book called How, How to Lose Everything, and it's an absolutely fabulous book. And it is so much about grief. It's about how it's about the grief of, um, you know, living uh, l- living through, um, you know, cancer, losing a limb. Uh, she's had uh, two of her children die in, with se- in separate uh, illnesses. Uh, living through divorce, and um, she really talks about how uh, normal is not a helpful word, and she suggests using typical. So I try to use typical, but it doesn't really fit sometimes. Yeah. I'm curious, Susan, do you have any other books that you would recommend to people who are um, in the grieving process that have helped you or that, Mm -hmm. you know, people you've interviewed have have suggested mm-hmm. there's so on my shelf i'm seeing option b which is um cheryl sandberg the um facebook woman who's written about her husband's death um there's one there's one called the children who the children who live that's about children in various fiction and movies like like harry potter um who are orphaned who's you know whose parents die so that's an interesting one um the man's search for meaning is always a good one. Victor Frank. There's one called Modern Loss, which is actually um, a website, and they wrote a book, and it's got, it's um, it's got lots of sort of illustrations um, and sort of cartoon-like. So you know, you can read it in like kind of bits and pieces. Um, you know, sort of the what to say, what not to say kind of, kind of things. And it's kind of, a, kind of amusing. I mean, I think that's, that's the other thing about grief is that it's not all sadness. People, mm. people who are grieving, um, you know, are, are, are capable of, of laughter might not feel like it in, in the moment for the person who's grieving. Um, and, um, you know, I think sometimes we're, we're afraid to, uh, you know, talk about funny things with people who are grieving but there's i mean grief is grief is is lots can can involve lots and lots of emotions including laughter and mirth (laughs) how familiar are you with the canadian grief alliance 
I'm one of the founding members. Ah, well, <laughs> I tell love us. the Canadian Grief Alliance. I was, was going to mention it earlier. Yeah, no, tell us about it. I know the Canadian Virtual Hospice has been, you know, um, one of the groups that are, you know, been pushing it forward. But yeah, tell us more about what is the Canadian Grief Alliance and what it's been up to in the since the pandemic, really. Well, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, first of all, I just have to say the Canadian Virtual Hospice, I have been a huge fan since the early 2000s. I was an early adopter. I thought it was a brilliant idea from the beginning um, to essentially make the, I mean, it's it's like what you're saying in terms of being a movement. It's making resources available to everyone everywhere. I mean, it's Canadian, but it's, of course, anybody can use it. Um, and so for me, it was really natural that it also become a leader in, uh, in, in grief. So, you know, they started mygrief.ca and kidsgrief.ca talking to, talking to children about uh, grief. And, um, and then, you know, in the pandemic sort of stepped up the kind of legislative pressure and, you know, invited a whole bunch of people to kind of sign on to this alliance and you know they're working with government if you know if our if we have any grief leadership in our current federal government it is because the canadian grief alliance has been moving the needle and you know pushing that agenda forward and i i i love the work of the canadian grief alliance and i'm so proud of it and more needs to be done. <laughs> yeah. Is a lot of the focus uh, and advocacy for what you just talked about, like grief literacy, um, you know, ads on buses, programs in schools, all this kind of stuff. Is that hmm. is that the sort of the things you're looking to advocate yeah. for? I I mean, I, I, certainly for me, and also um, you know, pieces, media pieces, and like writing things for the Conversation Canada, and writing things that got picked up by newspapers and um, you know, television spots, so that we're increasing the conversation um you know they've they've been doing a lot of that i've been doing a, a little bit of that with them and um you know it's just it's i think it's all contributing to increasing the conversation um about um about grief and in the in the same vein i'm working with mary ellen mcdonald at dalhousie university um and we're putting on a week-long festival called Good Grief Nova Scotia, the last week of September 2023. And there was some comment about the, you know, naming it Good Grief, um, and that not all grief is good, but it's good that we talk about it. So, you know, I think that's, a, um, we're, we're trying it. Nova Scotia is small enough that we can try it in a small, relatively uh, easy area to, you know, get people excited about it and hopefully we'll we'll grow it to something bigger oh i love that idea I, I, if i'm not mistaken the uk has a, a big festival every year and it's it's say based on the same one. i think it's called the good good grief, grief. Festival. Yep. Good yeah, grief yeah. festival yeah so we're we're riffing off of that <laughs> nice. there's also a the uk also has a the sue Ryder foundation uh which works with people with uh, serious illness um have a great great campaign called grief kind and they actually have a television ad that's one of my dreams they have a like 60 second television ad that you can find on youtube and um it's about grief it's it starts off with a a, a young woman punching a punching bag and it's like and then goes through all kinds of grief and it's just it's super well done it's just it's it's inspiring Wow. Okay. Well, we'll look for that and put it in our show notes. Um, there's two things else that I wanted to ask you before I let you go. There's one about the idea of the intersection about grief and bereavement and spirituality mm -hmm. and how, from your research and your own experiences, how those two intersect. So for me, they intersect very much in the sense that I work with a definition of spirituality as being about meaning making and um, the connection to something larger than oneself. So spirituality can be religious, but is not necessarily religious. And coming out of my research early on with people 
uh, grieving and HIV AIDS, uh, death to HIV and AIDS, most of the people I interviewed um, were from the what we now call a queer community. We didn't call it that at the time, but um, and um, a lot of queer folks are estranged from religion because many, many religions are not welcoming to queer folks. Um, and so for me, spirituality is about, is, is uh, I mean, it, you can define spirituality in a religious sense. I define spirituality in, in a sense of, you know, a, a connection to something bigger than oneself and about, you know, the, the making of meaning. And so for me, uh, you know, grief is, is very, the process of grief is very much about finding meaning. Certainly memorial tattoos are, are very much about finding meaning. Um, and often they are also about um, the, the process of grief um, is also about, uh, you know, sort of that sense of something larger than oneself and, you know, a, a purpose or, or um, uh, a legacy uh, or something like that that's, that's, that can be religious. And for some people, um, you know, that I've interviewed who are grieving and or have tattoos, you know, it is, it can be religious, um, specifically religious, and some some people it's not religious at all. In fact, it's a rejection of religion. So for me, it is, um, there's a, there's a spiritual aspect in that, in the, in that, in that way that I define religion, even if the person wouldn't necessarily consider it, consider it spiritual. Um, so I, but I see it, I see it, uh, you know, a lot of um, a lot of spirituality in that sense, and just the the idea too. When we we were discussing earlier about um, the sort of advocacy around the tattoos, I also saw advocacy when I was talking to bereaved parents. A lot of bereaved parents wanted to have the conversations with me, or do do volunteer work, or do things that in their lives start foundations and things like that because they want to advocate for other parents to have a different experience. And th that for me is about a connection to something larger than oneself. So it's not necessarily about something spiritual in that sense, like a higher power. It it's a sense of community and a sense of, um, of like, you know- Legacy that, leaving, legacy yeah, building. Exactly. Something yeah. bigger, something yeah. bigger. A so, higher purpose, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So not necessarily a higher power, but a higher purpose. That's a good way of putting it. So yeah, I, I yeah. definitely see that. Yeah. And I think our many people's purpose is connected to connections, relationships, their community mm -hmm. with others, mm -hmm. right? That's mm -hmm. how we, we find purpose. Yeah. Um, in some of, of your work, I've read, uh, maybe it's focused specifically with the pediatric group, but this idea, this term came up, post-traumatic growth. And so I'm just so curious, what, what does that mean and how does that play out in your, in your work? It's actually the thread that runs through everything that I do. Um, and it started many, many years ago um, before I did my PhD, I was working on a, on a sexual assault team and I encountered someone who basically told me that they were they were better off after having been sexually assaulted, which doesn't mean that the sexual assault was a good thing. Let's be clear. Um, and it made me kind of follow this thread and discover the idea of post-traumatic growth, which essentially is not necessarily something traumatic, but something adverse, something very difficult, something very challenging it happens to someone. And um, the um, the process of of sort of struggling with that, and again, we you know again we're going to think you know think about making meaning and sort of you know um, wrestling with a with an understanding of the whatever bad happened that 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 process can result in um, post traumatic growth. So growth that comes from not the event, but from the struggle with the event. And, um, you know, for in terms of growth can mean uh, a lot of things. It can mean a stronger sense of self. It can mean better relationships with other people. Uh, it can, uh, it can mean, you know, some kind of spiritual 
stronger spiritual connection or different spiritual connection. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of aspects to growth, but it is it is really the thread that goes through all of my career and people were people people with HIV, people who were caring for children with life limiting illnesses, people who were bereaved, people with tattoos, they all have amazing stories to tell about about their growth, about how they have um, benefited from in some way or another from the experiences that they've that that they've, you know, the processes of of reflections after their experiences. And so. have you found that there are characteristics of people who are better able to find this growth and um, versus those who um, face the, you know, get have in the event happen or a death happen and aren't able to really, you know, I don't want to say get over it because they're mm -hmm. still grieving, mm -hmm. but find it harder to do mm -hmm. so um i think um i mean i do i don't think that everyone necessarily grows from from negative experiences i think people different people grow differently and um i, I think you know people who are people who are very isolated or people who are um i mean there are there are some people who who get very struck stuck not struck stuck um and you know i think i'm i, I think you know i think about old-fashioned film that when you know old-fashioned movie projectors sometimes the film would get stuck and it you know the film would get so warm that it would melt and you know i think of memories and experiences when we have an experience uh, whatever it is, um, we, you know, it kind of makes a film in our lives. And for the most part, those memories just roll and they they don't experience any kind of problems. And for some people, those things get stuck and the film starts to melt and then, and that can really cause problems. So who those people are, I mean, and some of that has to do with trauma as well. Um, and, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and really kind of getting um things getting things melting down just to go back to the film analogy um and i think the number one thing that's really important to think about with growth is that ev everybody who experiences positive outcomes processes and outcomes from a difficult experience continues to experience distress and and you know and negative feelings so the idea that there's negative um there that there's positive positive outcomes the idea that there's positive outcomes doesn't mean that the negative outcomes and feelings go away they coexist they're they you know they might get smaller the big ones the positive ones might get bigger but they it's really really important that we understand that even when someone grows and says that they're a better person for having gone through this experience it doesn't mean that sometimes they don't get hit by you know a wave of of sadness or or grief or whatever the case might be so i think that's really important to make sure we know <laughs> that's i mean that's such a nice tie into the title of of the book that we just wrote was just hope for the best plan for the rest and this idea that hope and planning and thinking about the future can coexist and just because we're thinking about you know things uh, or you know preparing for different situations doesn't mean that we're going to suddenly become depressed or give up it means that we're planning for realistic things which actually might give us more hope realistic hope of of how we want to spend the time that we have so i think this coexistence of you know, positive and negative is really just, you know, part of living. So I, I think it shows up Love everywhere, it. including in grief. Yeah. Um, Love it. Yeah. Can you That's leave great. us with, can you leave us with one more story of a memorial tattoo that stands out in your mind of, of, of the tattoo and what it meant to the person who shared it? Um, absolutely. I, hmm, let me just think about which one I want to pick. <laughs>
the one that the one that uh, immediately came to mind is a um a father whose uh son had died by suicide and he knew he wanted to get a tattoo to honor his son but he couldn't decide what to get and the image came to him in a dream and he woke up and sketched it and took that to the tattoo artist and has it over his chest on the left side so it's over his heart and it's an image of um three uh candles um you know on a base of hearts because his son was loved and the three candles are shorter you know his son died in his third decade and the third candle has been snuffed out the two other candles are burning and the third candle is snuffed out and there's this sort of um, aura of smoke that surrounds the the tattoo it's it's a beautiful tattoo and it's incredibly meaningful and it is in a very private place that very few people see somebody takes a shirt off um, but for him it's he has a son close to him wow so we're almost at the end of time any final thoughts you'd like to share in terms of a waiting room revolution, here's another revolution that I'd like to see. I would love to see all healthcare providers uh, ready to ask people about tattoos as as a uh, tattoos that people have or people are planning because sometimes people are too ill or can't afford to get the tattoo, but they have a they have an idea for it. Um, and I mean, it's a real it's a real it's a real connection. It's a real door opener, especially when they're memorial tattoos. But even when they're not, there's still there's still stories. Even if it's just I really like this character in this movie or this cartoon or whatever that I have tattooed on my hip. Like, but let's ask about them instead of just ignoring them because I think um, I think they get ignored a lot in healthcare, and I think it's a good way of connecting. Yeah. From it, I think what you're saying is in in this in a way to bring back the humanity in healthcare, you've learned that tattoos are a gateway to learn about who that person is, what's important to them. Another way of, you know, the dignity, patient dignity question of what you need to know about me to provide the best care. Yep. You know, if you talk about this tattoo or particularly if it's a memorial tattoo, you'll know what I'm about and what's important to me. So absolutely. Yep. You said yeah. it very well. <laughs> yeah. And I think the waiting revolution is asking patients and families to, to either start with, this is what you need to know, or, Hey, let me tell you about my tattoo, because this is my past experience with, with dying. And, um, you know, it is going to affect how I think that this is going to be for me, you know, often other people, you know, how your past experiences make you think that it will repeat for yourself. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it, it's important to understand that if you want to provide the best care. 100%. Susan, it was such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. You, ma you make it very easy. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shopa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza.